Welcome back to the Sun and Moon Sober Living Podcast, where we explore addiction recovery, mental health, and how to live a life of freedom, fulfillment, and joy while staying sober. My name is Mary Tilson, your host, and I'm a certified recovery coach and yoga and meditation teacher. My guest on the podcast today is Valerie Vimalasara Mason John. Vimalasara is a poet, public speaker, the award-winning author and editor of 10 books, and co-founder of 8-Step Recovery, which is a recovery program that uses the Buddha's teachings to overcome addiction. They are also a senior teacher in the Tri Ratna Buddhist community and one of the leading African descent voices in the field of mindfulness for addiction. Before we dive into this powerful conversation, I do have a quick favor to ask. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to support us in reaching more people with the message of recovery, please take a moment after listening to rate and review the show and consider sharing the link with someone else who can benefit. It really does make a huge difference and is greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Vimala Sara. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. I'm so grateful to be sharing this conversation with you. As I've shared with you, I've been following your work around eight-step recovery for some time and really enjoyed being able to watch you speak at the She Recovers conference. So thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. And I always like to begin these conversations by giving our listeners a little bit of background into your story. So would you mind sharing about what led you into recovery in the first place? Mm. I always say that the most traumatic thing in life is birth. So in a way, I would say like, one has always been in recovery, recovering something, but consciously in recovery and realizing I need to do something to change my life. I remember getting to that point and actually I've just had a image flash by. I can remember I had, I'd been working as an international correspondent covering Aboriginal deaths in custody and Aboriginal land rights out in Australia. I was 25. I came back to England when I was 27. And I can remember having this this dream and I was in this this cell and this washed out floor and I was dying. And and then I saw a, a daddy long leg, one of those spiders with long legs, and that was life. And it was like, okay, I needed to choose life. And, you know, and re- whether it was, whether I was literally or, metaphorically I was because I had uh, a chronic disordered eating and to give myself respite I took substances and I was very aware of the impact it was having on my brain more so than the disordered eating I mean that was having an impact on the body but just really aware of the that my brain my brain was changing was really aware of that I had I well actually in certain contexts as young I was seen as a genius and it was like it I just knew I, I couldn't just tell you what it was that was changing in the brain but I knew it was changing and I wanted that brain back and I thought you know maybe I should learn a new language because I knew you know that learning a new language you know, it's in the Brockers area that could stimulate the brain. I started doing headstands. I talk about this a bit in my book, Detox Your Heart um, Meditations for Emotional Trauma. And I fell into meditation. Yeah. And it was, you know, in a way, it was quite interesting because I was in a community of people who meditated. And, and I always used to ask, my friend about their partner, what what do they do? And and I had connected with meditation in, earlier in my life, which is another story. So 
it was then through the meditation. So it wasn't doing the headstands or learning the new language. It was a meditation. And actually, I was going to go and live in Spain. And I realized I'd come across something and that I shouldn't leave it. And, and I needed to explore that. And so really that the, the, the meditation was my therapy. Definitely. It definitely was my, my therapy very much to, to begin with. Yeah. So I think that might answer your question. Yeah, absolutely. And I know you speak about in the book and sharing your story in your book, Eight Step Recovery, about the beginning of your experience with disordered eating and how your eating disorder, I think you say that you compare it to like a drug, the binging and purging. And I find that interesting that it comes up quite a bit with people having this experience, this crossover between eating disorders and addiction. And I'd be curious to hear more about what your experience is with that and what your thoughts are on the relationship between the two. In a way, I'd say that I don't compare it. I see that disordered eating is an addiction for, for many of us. And it has the same components if you think of compulsion, loss of control, cravings and the consequences, the four C's of, of addiction. And what they, I would love to be part of some research and to really write about the addictive components of disordered eating because there's I don't know any literature which actually talks about it from that perspective. So, you know, let's let's talk, you know, I was an anorectic bulimic. So let's go, I was more, you know, kind of a chronic bulimic. So basically, I could not walk past a bakery without not going in and buying. Okay. That's like somebody not being able to walk past a bottle shop or an off license and going in and buying alcohol. One could not. And I would be in there ordering this food. Then I couldn't get in sugar, that thing, I couldn't stop. And then there would be the purging. And also that's addictive with the purging. I mean, let's go, let me just go back to the trance of, of ordering food. That's so trance-like. And nothing else mattered. You know, when you people talk about taking heroin, fentanyl, nothing matters, is what they say. No, nothing. And that would be the same in that trance-like of binging and going from shop to shop to eat it. Nothing mattered. And then also you would have these, I'd have these altered states where balance would go and just, you were just in this world. Nothing else mattered in this world. And then the purging would put you into another particular state. And then of course, when it wore over, what would you be doing? You know, five minutes later, you'd be back doing it again. I can remember when food stuck in my throat and I'm having to jump up and down because it's like, am I going to kill myself? And finally it dislodged. I collapsed by the toilet. And what am I doing half an hour later? Packing out fine food to binge and eat. So, you know, how can you not say that this is, is an addiction? I mean, you know, people can tell that same story with, you know, whether it's a substance or a process, you know, of course it, it falls into the category of process addiction. Also, anorectic when I was strictly anorectic and not the limit I was anorectic for the first three or four years and just the addictiveness of the lightness in the body and and the power and 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 the control and losing that 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 control was it it was it was like you know I had to get it back there's a the, the, the addictive rituals that there were like sticking to you know at one point it was like I would only eat three crackers a day and actually stick it that addictive behavior and sticking to it and the high of being able to stick to it and the high of being able to do all this exercise I mean at one point it's I my body couldn't cope with the physical addictive exercise that went with it and it was like it, it was in protest and needed more food and that was the fear of holding on to the food and the, the addictiveness to the, to the shape 
of 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 the body it's never was never right was never i mean you that dysmorphia one couldn't even see the body it was it you know it was like that thing of the addictiveness of it wanting wanting it to be something that that you could never see there was never ever a satisfaction but definitely with the rituals with the anorexia the rituals the feeling of not eating food and 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 the power of that so you you know for me i'd speak for myself and my own experience it disordered eating is is in a, is an addiction we lose we lose reality we lose we lose, lose all sense of of reality yeah right it's so powerful hearing you describe your experience with the binging and purging as a trance like state and going into that. And then also, you know, when I hear your experience of getting something lodged in your throat and making yourself so sick, it does mirror, you know, alcohol and drug addiction where you have these negative adverse consequences, but you continue engaging in the behavior, you are right back at it. So what is it that you think was driving you to engage in these behaviors? You know, the the disordered eating definitely the anorectic side of myself was wanting to hide the body and not wanting specifically men to look at the body because you know part of my journey has been sexual trauma and it's like uh you know men don't look at the body on a particular level if it's too thin too too thin just as a way that there are many women who have obesity have got the beat from the compulsive eating is another way of hiding from men because men don't look at big women or obese women in the same way it's one of the reasons why it can be so challenging to get well if you have the the if you're whatever end of the spectrum you are when you start getting well and and the body changes on a particular level you get that attraction that perhaps you don't want, you know, so that is that shield. And just really want to say culturally, this is in the Western culture, because in certain cultures, being big is is celebrated. Yeah. You know, definitely in certain cultures, being really thin and skeletal is, is not celebrated. So, so dri- definitely driving those behaviours is partly that for some some of us we want to disappear or hide, you know, knowing that men don't like, you know, this is generalising like or even any gender, seeing people eating on the streets, etc. And then for me, definitely through the, the, the purging, through the bulimia, that trance, and I want to say actually starving yourself can be very trance-like as well. So on both those spectrums, but definitely for me, uh, the bulimia was purging the filth out of me. I was that young person being assaulted or being told to do particular stuff. And so it was definitely purging the filth out of me. I mean, you know, to be really explicit is that you know one of the things that I was made to do as as a child was to suck penises and so as that old you older that for me I was purging the filth out of me and that definitely was the the drama of the the binging and the purging definitely purging the filth out of me yeah so let's just take a pause for a moment in 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 that yeah Yeah. So, you know, again, we again, when we think of habitual and addictive behaviors of disordered eating, you know, often people are are working out stuff that's happened in childhood. And in a way, it's almost like in a way, sometimes we you often hear people say that the the addictive saved them. You know, in a way I was able, you know, for me on that level was able to purify myself on a particular level yeah Yeah, thank you for sharing that and it really speaks to the importance of 
addressing the underlying trauma, you know, that sits beneath disordered eating and addiction. And how did that look for you when it came to, you know, if this was clearly a coping mechanism at one point to deal with the trauma, how did you start to work through some of that? Yeah, I I remember clearly getting to a point of thinking, I don't need this anymore. I, I remember really clearly, I don't need this anymore, but I didn't know how to stop. That was the thing, I, I didn't know how to stop. And so that was a, a journey in, in, in itself. And, you know, definitely the the meditation but the mindfulness that it it wasn't enough and you know doing therapy and actually I would say for me and, and definitely working in this field what was really important to that recovery was having somebody who could hold the foods I had a dietitian and then I had a therapist and the two worked together so you know often if I have people clients coming to me through it might not be food it could be alcohol whatever I'm kind of saying I need you to be in a program it doesn't have to be the 12-step program but some program where somebody is actually holding the alcohol or holding the porn or holding the whatever the substance is while I can do the work because the reality is that when one goes into therapy and you begin to explore some of that trauma then what happens is the behavior, the addictive behaviors are going to flare up because it's the addictive behaviors that have been pushing away some of the stuff that we don't want to turn towards. And so you need somebody to, um, to hold that, which is why I reframed mindfulness-based relapse prevention right? and created a course with Dr. Pamela Bantu Groves called Mindfulness-Based Addiction Recovery. Because when people go into recovery and begin to do that work, it's often inevitable that the addictive behaviors are going to get worse for a while because that's what you've been using to soothe this stuff. Yeah. And so what's going to take the place of soothing? You're saying to somebody, you know what, you know, okay, you've got this trauma, but we're wanting you to stop doing all the things that have been soothing you. Yeah. Yeah. So, which again, as you know, which is why. Meditation and mindfulness, what I want to say to people listening, thinking, oh, meditation and mindfulness is, is the antidote. What I want to say is what meditation and mindfulness does is helps to begin to regulate the central nervous system. Yeah, helps to regulate the sympathetic nerve, you know, if we think of the vagus theory or whatever, what's going to begin to regulate, yeah. And this is another reason why people constantly relapse because they're doing this work, but there's nothing to help regulate that central nervous system, nothing to help open up that window of tolerance so that you can be in a place where when you are knocked off centre, that you don't have to reach out for the substance because that's going to keep you off centre, that when you have a threat come to you, you might feel a wobble on that centre, but you can still stay in that centre and not reach for these addictive habits, which could be a matter of life and death for many. Absolutely. And what was that process like for you then when you started to be introduced to these practices? Did you notice that of starting to have a little bit more of the mindfulness practices brought in and then returning to the behaviours? At what point did you finally feel like you were free from them? Oh, you know, I knew, I, I often say that meditation and mindfulness is my Prozac. I mean, I got into meditation because I could get high on it. I mean, you know, it was like, okay, you know, it doesn't cost anything. It's not illegal. I can remember the millennium and all my mates, the parties that they were going to go to, because I was a party and a raver and partied and everything which went along with that. You know, I, I was actually the artistic director of London Mardi Gras Arts and helped put on the big street festival and you know in in that that very much that culture but coming back to the millennium I knew I was like I'm going on retreat for three weeks because I knew I would get high and have altered states from meditating 
you know, I mean, meditation is very different now, but actually meditation does still make me have experience of positivity, feeling good and calm. So what would happen is I would, you know, go on these retreats for a week or two weeks and then come back and then kind of come off the retreat, the duvet, it's like the duvet being pulled off you and be into the into the food. I was able the letting go of the the drugs and the alcohol was easy. Letting go of using the food was hard and still is challenging. You know, it's 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 like it, I you know sometimes people say, well, you know, food is a lot more harder because you know you can't be abstinent from food. Well, the people who are anorectic, right? often abstinent from many, many foods. And what we have to look at, and it's the same when we're working with people who perhaps have got sex addiction or whatever, is looking at what are the behaviours that get you into trouble. Yeah. And those are the things that we need to really look at being abstinent from or having some kind of harm reduction from. So for me, in terms of the food, sugar. It's like I have to be really aware of sugar, yeah. And, you know, because if I was eating, it's, it's like all the rage is now medicinal cacao. Yeah, let's have medicinal cacao. It's all the rage, whatever. And it's like, well, I can't really do that all the time because if I have chocolate in my system and I can't stop, then I'm going to have my head down the toilet. So the bottom line is I don't want my head down the toilet. Yeah. So, and then again, you know, I, I mean, of course, you know, in that recovery, you know, I had there, there are going to be times when I might, well, when I, when I will eat more than what I want to eat, but you know, it's learning to be with the discomfort of that and not going to the toilet to throw up, you know, or not starving oneself. So definitely, I mean, for me, my breakthrough was I can remember being in treatment and I had this specialized treatment for disordered eating and I remember coming to the end of it and 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 thinking well if that doesn't work what will work and I remember I had a couple of lovers in Italy and I was you know um, went to Italy to be with those two lovers and was a bit in protest and I came back and I had a show to do. I had a one woman show to do. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to be able to do this because the purging really has an impact on the throat. And this voice said, yes, you can. And it was like, me, well, how? And it's like, we'll just stop throwing up. And in that moment, it was like, I wanted something more than the food. And I think to me, that's a key in recovery that somehow we have to get to the place that we want something more than picking up and how do we get to that place wanting something more than picking up you know we can do all this stuff it's like you know we get you know that fatigue so oh I can't be bothered can't be bothered I'd rather just turn to the behavior than actually be in that place of discomfort because that's what we're doing isn't it you know at the end of the day working with saying to people will learn to be with discomfort who wants to be with discomfort that's so true and I think it's so easy to really hyper fixate on everything that's being taken away from us like we're losing something but to reframe it as the positive in your life and what it is that you want and what's on the other side in the recovery process seems like it can be equally valuable yeah and I think definitely writing this book, there was a part of me thinking, wow, what, what was it? Why did I keep on relapsing and actually realizing in the moment I was choosing something different? That's okay. And to just really acknowledge, acknowledge that. Yeah. Right. And how did you first get introduced to the Buddhist teachings? Because you have a beautiful way of bringing in Buddhist teachings in eight step recovery to support people in finding freedom from addiction. And really so far beyond just people who are struggling with addiction, I feel like this book has something to offer absolutely everyone. But how did that come into play for you? Well, in my professional life, I, I don't really speak about it. But in my personal life, I'm, 
I'm ordained into a Buddhist tradition. I'm a senior uh, teacher in my Buddhist tradition and actually ordain um, ordain women in into my tradition. So again, it was through meditation. I it definitely through it was through meditation. And I was with the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, which is now called the True Ratna Buddhist Community. And I can remember just starting going to talks and realizing mm, this, these talks are having an impact on me. So that was it. And then what we call is I went for refuge. I, when we go for refuge, it is about um, placing the three jewels at the center of our lives, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha. And it does happen to be one of the steps which we talk about placing positive values at the centre of one's life, because actually realising, you know, at one point, my addictive behaviours was at the centre of my life. And if they're at the centre of the life, what do we act, what do we end up doing? We end up acting out. And how can how can how can we shift what's causing the addictive behaviours, how can we shift them more to the edge of what we say our mandala, the edge of our lives and have more positive things at the centre of our lives? Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking of that step when you were speaking because I love that that's part of it is placing positive values at the centre of our lives. Could you speak to what the eight steps are in eight-step recovery? Sure. Well, what, what I want to say is, is definitely for people who perhaps are Buddhist practitioners that they'll most likely recognize the first three steps because what we do is we kind of use the framework of the Four Noble Truths, which comes from the, the Buddhist teachings and comes from the most recent Buddha we know from India. And so what we do is just make the language more accessible so, you know, the first noble truth that there is suffering. And I think people can find this quite, well, sometimes people misunderstand that because it's not saying that life is suffering, okay? It's, it, you know, it's actually that there's certain things that we are going to suffer in life, that's part of it, but it doesn't mean to say that life is suffering. So basically, that first step is accepting that this human life will bring suffering, which is very different from saying life is suffering. And actually, for me, that teaching was so pivotal for my recovery because, you know, I've said it many times, I actually thought that something was wrong with me because I was suffering. And, and I'm, I thought most of that I was the only one who was suffering. But when I was realising, oh, this is part of life, it was almost like, oh, I'm human. Nothing is necessarily wrong with me, you know. And then um, the the second one is the second noble truth is about there are things that cause suffering. So in a way, again, for me, in, you know, in making it more accessible in that recovery world, because I could really see when I read that second noble truth, the causes of suffering is craving, is clinging. I could really see how I created extra suffering in my life. And that is the second one. It's just seeing how we create extra suffering in our lives. And you know, it's just really important because actually people don't realise that actually they multiply the suffering and they don't need to be suffering as much as what they're doing. And then definitely the end of, of suffering is, is the third one, which gives hope, definitely. I think for me just really that there can be an end of suffering. So that third step is recognizing permanence shows us that our suffering can end. And I think that's really important if we begin to recognize impermanence. It's like, look at me now, once upon a time, I was this newborn being. You know, 10 years ago, I'm very different from what I am now. You know, even in that aging, that there is impermanence. And if we look out in nature, you know, it's like in this part of the world, fall is upon us, that things are changing, things are dying. And then we move into the fourth step, actually, is being willing to step onto the path of recovery and discover freedom. And I think, you know, for us, it was like, actually, you need to, there needs to be a part of you who wants to do that. Even if you've got one foot in and one foot out, there has to be a part of you 
that wants to step on to the path of recovery because some people think I, I don't have an issue I'm not interested whatever there's nothing you can do that's their choice you know and it's only when that somebody opens up to that possibility yeah then you know recovery can really begin and definitely really think that you know one I know in my life I've discovered freedom continue to discover freedom Step five is that moral inventory. Often people say, where's the moral inventory in eight step, you know, trying to compare it and liking it to 12 step. Well, that moral inventory is around transforming our speech, actions and livelihood. Yeah. And definitely for some people, their livelihood supports their addictive behaviours. And that can be really hard. You know, are you willing to begin to change that are you willing to begin to change your actions and your speech yeah and then as we said before placing both positive values at the center of our lives is step six and then I think for me this is a, a step that I continually work at is making every effort to stay on the path of recovery and I remember somebody saying you know effort I've got to a point where I don't have to make effort. And I said, well, so when you experience yourself being uncomfortable, what what do you do? Well, yeah, I could still turn away. And I said, well, the effort is doing nothing. How can we just be in just doing nothing when discomfort arises, when something we don't like arises, when we experience a threat, when we experience triggered? How can we do that? Yeah. So that's continually, I, I, I work with that. Could I pause you on that one for a moment? Because sure. that, I find that to be one of the most challenging things in our modern world, isn't it? It's this addiction to busyness and filling the time and being productive. And I mean, do you see that, that that's something that has become more difficult to navigate in our world today? It, it you know, it's, it's, it's that collective consciousness. I mean, it's almost like um, so society in 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 the West has been so created to produce more productivity out of us. It's almost like it's it's a good thing to be busy and to keep on going and and doing all these things. And does it because I think sometimes that gives meaning to people's lives, you know what if we if we think about it it's really interesting my partner has taken early retirement and then I heard I'm bored don't know what to do what to and then just really busying yourselves and you know what if it that you just stop and just do nothing what you know and and basically because you know we don't have children there aren't grandchildren so I can see some of her siblings their life is busy with the grandchildren kind of full that's like you know is that that the meaning of life so it's as you say this busyness yeah 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 there seems to be almost a shame associated with just not doing anything like as if that's a problem I know a lot of the people that I speak to in this conversation it's kind of like the ability to give ourselves permission to rest is a whole process in itself and a whole unlearning of everything that feels like we've been taught. And then I know some really wealthy people and in their retirement, what do they do? They go on cruises. They're on cruises 24-7. Cruises mm -hmm. and that whole business of life on cruises. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's an interesting one. It's, it's nice to expand our perspective on addiction to beyond, I think beyond just drugs and alcohol and eating disorders. I know you speak about the addiction to thinking too, which is another one because there are these sneaky ones that can create so much suffering that we don't necessarily think of as, as, as problematic as they are. I do. Thanks for naming that. I can remember clearly waking up and that was at the beginning of letting go because there was not the beginning of the recovery, but the beginning having some freedom around food and thinking oh my god my biggest addiction is my thinking thinking and just how like yeah and it was shocking it was just like oh my god it was like oh do I have to start all over again yeah 
So just bringing these steps to completion, the, the eighth step is helping others to share the benefits I have gained. And I want to say something about, uh, about that, Mary, because often um, people get so excited and it's like they've been in recovery for six months, year, and they want to change the world and they want to set up meetings and they want to do this and and they take a big fall. And, you know, it's like I just want to say, actually, for me, you know, when I, I never identified as somebody being in recovery. So, in fact, when this book, this book identified me, my whole identity changed on a particular level when this book came out. But I had been in recovery for a good eight, nine years. Yeah. And what I say to people is how we share the benefits we have gained is it's just our recovery. You don't need to write books, but can we have that recovery and model that and not tell people what they need to do, but actually to be in that. And I can really see that with some of my friends, you know, a new friend in my life past couple of years is really attaching to me because they can really see the benefits of, you know, not using the the substances of marijuana or of 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 alcohol and whatever, and that's what they want to do. And so you just model that, you know, how can we model it in in our behaviors? Yeah. That's such an important point. And also it brings to mind, even just by working your recovery, you're not causing harm onto other people too, right? The loved ones in your life, people you come into contact with. Yeah. Yeah. That's good to have that clarity because I know that that's also a part of, you know, it's, it's in the 12 step tradition and in yoga, there's an emphasis on being of service and it's kind of defining, well, what does that mean? How do I be of service? And it's easy to see the really big kind of grandiose examples out there. But just to hear you say that is a really nice reminder that it can be working our own recovery too. Yeah, we're not separate. It's not like separate enough and whatever that actually if we're really modeling that ourselves and we're interconnected with the, the rest of the world. Yeah. Thank you. And when it comes to working this program, how do you recommend people work an eight-step program? Is it by going to meetings? Is it by working with a mentor? Yeah, a great question. Actually, it's been really interesting that I haven't, you know, I haven't been out there trying to promote this. It's it's like it's it's just kind of grown on their own. So there are people who have meetings who have no Buddhist experience at all. In fact, I would say that actually, I think if there was an intention, there was a hope that my Buddhist Sangha take it on and it would be something that those, because it's very big in Europe and in England, and that the centres would offer this. But, you know, there was such a pushback from people who are in the 12-step community in the Sangha because the, the Buddhist community had pushed back on 12 step, blah, 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 didn't understand it, recognition. In fact, I had hate mail about you can't, you can't, even from some of my own Sangha members, you can't do this, this is dangerous, 12 step, blah, blah, blah. You know, because if you think about it, like 15 years ago, 12 step was the dominance. It's only like in this past 15 years, we've had Buddhist recovery and smart recovery, although it's been around for a long while, has become a lot more popular and there's all these different variations of recovery. So, you know, in a way, it was like that didn't happen. And on a particular level, initially, I was quite disappointed. What, you know, my own Buddhist community isn't going to take this on because it was written by two people in, in the, from our community, you know. But actually, as, as I say, there are meetings and there for anybody and everybody there are some people who go to those meetings who might want to know more about buddhism and might get involved but that's not the intention it's really as we say i think in the title eight step recovery using the buddhist teachings to overcome addiction and what i do want to say is is that for me the and many people have heard me say this that as far as i'm concerned the buddhist teachings 
that come from Shakyamuni, come from that teacher in India is the oldest recovery program that we know of today. You know, it's in that first discourse, it's clearly said that there is addiction to hedonism, which is lowly coarse and unprofitable. And there is addiction to self-mortification, which is lowly coarse and unprofitable. And we need the middle way. So I want to say that in, in Burma, in India, in many places in Asia, the monks have been using these teachings to help people with their alcoholism and addictive behaviors. So in a way, it, it, it wasn't that we're doing anything new. It was just really, it was implicit in the teachings. I say it's the oldest therapeutic program that we know of today. It's implicit in the teachings. Right. And, you know, I've personally found just learning that these teachings go back as far as they do. That's helped me so much with self-compassion to know that for thousands of years, human beings have been trying to work through this. And there's so much, I think, to gain from Buddhist teachings. One of the concepts that I love so much is that of the hungry ghost. And I Mm. think that it's such a powerful symbol for craving and addiction. Would you mind speaking to that a little bit and explaining that? Sure. So you're talking about a section, there's a teaching called the wheel of life. And on that wheel of life, there is the there's the God realm, which I would say that many of us in in the in the West, you know, where war isn't on our doorstep, are in that God realm. We can feel safe, and at some point, that God realm runs out. There is the realm of the Titan realm, where people are just always fighting and warring. You could see that really in terms of there are many countries in the world who are really struggling and and warring. Then we have the animal realm, which I would say that many of us, if we're not in the if we're not in the God realm, we're in the animal realm, which I just say it's a bit like, you know, you eat, fart, shit, sleep, wake up. Is that in that 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 animal realm? And then, of course, there's the hungry, there's the, 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 well, let's talk about the hell realm. There's the hell realm where, you know, that people are really tortured. And we know even in that, those people perhaps who've got addictive behaviors could be in that hell realm too, that, that hell realm where it's just, it's just hellish. In fact, I would say at one point I was in the hell realm in the hell, oscillating between the hell realm and the hungry ghost realm. The hungry ghost realm depicts the the craving and it's like the huge, the image is a huge belly and a tiny mouth. You can never get enough, this hungry ghost realm. And then there's what's called the human realm. And it's said that in the human realm, it's a place that we can really make changes. So it's not linear, but we can find ourselves in different states you know in a way those realms can represent mental states you know so that hungry ghost realm you know represents the mental state of craving and clinging the hell realm represents that mental state of just torturous mind the titan state you know represents that mental state of hatred and then the god realm you know that bliss one into one in the bliss and the human realm is seen, I know why, the human realm just represents perhaps that place of equanimity and balance. And inside that wheel of life, you've actually got the cock, the snake, and the pig, which represents hatred, greed, and delusion, and they're chasing each other, so going around and around and around. So it's a very, it's 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 a very powerful it's a very powerful teaching and one could look at addictions in in that map in in that in that format yeah thanks i it's a great teaching thanks for bringing that to mind yeah thank you for explaining that and when you describe it as mental states do you notice yourself in your daily life now as a person in recovery move through those states and just being able to be aware when maybe a little bit of that 
because I, I find the the visual depiction of the hungry ghost has really helped me when I'm picking up on there's sort of that feeling of like the craving for more that can't quite get satisfied. Do you find that it's something that you move through those states, you know, periodically or just people tend to exist in one or the other? Well, I, I speak for myself. There's time, you know, one of the things that I work with is this people who know me, my my attachment to uh, raw cashew nuts. And there's times when it's not like I'll eat copious, but, you know, I'll get, you know, a small bag and it's there's never enough. It's like, you know, for some people it would last for a week, you know, for me, keep on going back and it's never enough. So I mean, I'm definitely in that hungry ghost realm when it's never enough. It's not soothing, you know. So, but you know, there are. I'm I'm really aware of, you know, as I say, if we, the, the world, certain parts of the world is on fire at the moment, and I suppose, you know, kind of currently, what's been brought to mind is, you know, what's happening in in the region of Israel and Palestine, and just, you know, kind of like. I'm in this God realm at the moment. It's like I'm safe. I, I I don't have to worry about, you know, my house being bombed or, you know, or or I have to fear for my life. But then sometimes, you know, it's it's like there can be that overwhelm, and I'm I'm in my own dukkha. I'm in my own struggle. I'm in my own suffering, and and all I can see is just what's in front of my nose. And so it's it's changing all the time, and. What I want to say is, is that often, you know, if we have the 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 privilege to be able to be in recovery, because I think it is a real privilege to to be in recovery, is that often we know that there are many seekers, seekers to be, you know, bliss, to be in that God realm. And we do it in many different ways by, you know, we might want to do it through taking drugs, like, and I want to include psychedelics in there because it's often thought that psychedelics are the good drugs and everything else is the bad drugs but hey they're all doing something similar and we're one in this um bliss-like state but you know if we go back to the teachings of uh, Shakyamuni you know as a prince he didn't vow to find enlightenment he vowed to find an end of suffering which is very different and I think, again, that what we have to remember, those of us who've got these addictive compulsive behaviours, that it's it's not like we often we're reaching for the bliss. We want to be in that God realm, but actually we need to find the end of the suffering. And to find an end of the suffering, we have to come face to face to our suffering and be with that, with to be with that suffering. So, you know, in answer to your question, people moving around all the time and it's not linear and depending on what's going on in people's lives you know if somebody's just died you hear that parent or whatever you could you could go into the hell realm, or you might even go into the hungry ghost realm yeah well if there is anyone who's listening and you've shared so much valuable wisdom over the last hour and thank you so much too for sharing from your personal experience if there is anyone who's listening who finds themselves in that sort of vicious cycle, what would be your best advice to that person of the next best step that they can take after finishing listening to this conversation? You know, I suppose it's cliched, but not to lose, I was going to say don't give up, but that's not to lose, not to lose possibility in your recovery because I think sometimes I could say not to lose hope but that can make us quite passive hope to be saved but there are that remind reminding ourselves that there are there are possibilities and that for me definitely that was really important that the possibility of being able to let go the possibility of being able to have freedom, that freedom is possible. And that actually, you know, I love, there's an aphorism in, in the spiritual world and it says, 
before enlightenment is chopping the wood and hauling the water and after enlightenment is chopping the wood and hauling the water. And I think this is really important because often I think sometimes people think, oh, well, if I let go, everything's going to be okay. No, if you let go of the addictive or compulsive behaviours, you're still having to deal with the same old crap, but you, you're dealing with it without, without the filter of your addictive or compulsive behaviours. And so that's what gives us freedom. So in a way, is that there are possibilities. And the other thing is, if you've been really working at something and it still hasn't worked, try something different. It's not working. You know, it's like, you know, if you've been in the rooms of 12 sets for 20, 30 years and still nothing has happened, it's time to try something different because there are different things and it may be that, you know, to take total agency. And I really do, you know, I might be quite radical, but, you know, if you... If you're somebody who you think, well, you want to try assisted, you know, ketamine therapy or you want to try assisted client, you know, because for some people it works. Not to think, oh, no, that's really bad because people say it's bad, but actually there are so many different paths and modalities and I don't know what one is going to work for you. What worked for me was meditation, mindfulness, Buddhism and therapy, specialised people who knew about the, the 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 disorder that I have. I think that's really important because sometimes we can go to people who don't really know. They they might be general or working with addiction, but they don't know. And so they they don't know when the wool is being pulled over their eyes because people don't understand the nuance of alcoholism or the nuance of porn addiction or the nuances, you know? So yeah. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And I'm going to be sure to link your details in the show notes. Is there anything that you want our listeners to be aware of where they can connect with you or any resources you'd like to share with them? Yeah, it's it's, it's about time I updated my website, but you can get in touch with me on my, my website. I I have a new book coming out next year. It's a pocket book. It's called A First Aid Kit for the Mind breaking habitual behaviours, so do reach out for that. I do do public speaking engagements and training, you know, training in the MBAR, the Mindfulness-Based Addiction Recovery Training, which is, I think I have an eight-week, I need to put that on the website, I have a a training coming up, the MBAR training, which is a month long online. It's, it's you just send a short video every every day, so there's that, or if you want me to come in and do some training with you, I can do that. I can work legally in Canada, the US and England. I used to say Europe, but, you know, whole Brexit stuff. It's like, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, and you can find me on my website, which is my name, Valerie Mason with a hyphen and John. And thank you for having this podcast because, Definitely, cast hearing people speak about these important things is very important for people's recovery. Yeah, thank you. I was thinking as you were speaking about just how fortunate we are to have so many different paths to try when you were saying, if something isn't working, try something else. So thank you for opening up so many pathways during this conversation and providing the resources that you do. I really appreciate your time. Thank you.